In a tiny town called Defuniac Springs, in one of the last counties on Florida's panhandle, there is a little wooden building painted white. It sits next to a small lake that shares the name of the town, and is a block over from a historic building called Chautauqua Hall that served as an assembly hall for the town for over a century. The tiny building by the lake has a red door, squat roofs, and a simple sign over the threshold that reads, Library. It is the oldest continuously running library in the state of Florida, built in 1886. It was named for an officer in the Confederate Army, Frederick D. Funiak, who after the Civil War became a vice president in a railroad company that operated throughout the South. It was called the Louisville and Nashville Railroad, and when it connected with other railroad junctions in the South, the town of Defuniac was founded as a last stop on said railroad. At the exact same time, teachers from across the state were coming to terms with their importance in society as Florida became more settled. Their pay was frighteningly low, and an association to advocate for teachers was founded in March of that year. Their first official gathering was at the next building over from the library in the Chautauqua Hall. Dozens of teachers met and officially founded the Florida Education Association, which to this day is the largest union in the state with over 130,000 members. The next block over, another association, the Ladies Library Association, was raising money to support a local library. Within a year, it opened in the spot it stands to this day. Today, it holds over 20,000 books and even has a small historic weapons collection, including pieces that date back as far as the medieval times. Across the states today, there are over 400 individual library buildings, including city branches, county branches, and on college campuses. In my travels for this show, I have found myself in some amazing libraries. There's a library in Tampa that sits right next to a river with windows looking out to the water. There is a huge library in Miramar outside of Miami that sits right at the central point of the city. There is a teeny tiny library in Polk County that hides off the main road shaded by palms. In every small town I travel through, en route to another historic town, there have been signs pointing to a library and I have to force myself to not pop in, grab a book, and sit a while. I found that in every Florida section, in every Florida library I've wandered into, there are a few mainstays, some consistencies. There's a collection of columns by Carl Hyacin, there's Zora Neale Hurston's folklore book, there's a book called The Swamp by Michael Grunwald, which is a great read, there's a few biographies of Henry Flagler, some picture books, and more. If you're lucky, the library will have a crusty old tome about their local history wrapped in plastic covering with notes in the margins. Sometimes, in the bigger branches, they'll have old pamphlets from tourist attractions or programs from local plays or collections of Florida maps, trivia, addresses, graveyards, and more. Some even have Florida collections with books so old and treasured that you can't even take them out of the library. One such collection is in the Orange County Library, which is a gray concrete building outside and a warm handful of floors on the inside. In the very back few rows of the very top floor, in a shadowed corner, is the Florida collection, with hundreds of ripped and faded books and documents. In that collection is a little book called Florida Poets, with brown speckled pages and work from a handful of authors. And on page 14, there is a poem attributed to a man named Philip E. Barney, titled Daytona Beach. It's two short stanzas, eight lines total, 27 words, creating a deeply perplexing little piece of art. I'll read it verbatim. Swifter than sight, a flash and a roar, 
a meteorite skimming the shore. Defiant of fate, man is the master. A moment, but wait, death can fly faster. I'm Nick D'Alessandro, and this is Wait 5 Minutes, a podcast about Florida by a Floridian. This week, Florida's Poet Laureates, and how this strange little poem in this strange little book is part of the continuing legacy of poetry in Florida. It's a brisk Saturday morning, a rainy late winter day. The sky is overcast all day, and though the rain would put a sour mood over most other environments, it's somehow enhancing the beautiful neighborhood that I've arrived in. I'm in a historic district of southern St. Petersburg, where a few dozen homes built in the 1930s sit in the shade of ancient live oak trees. Just beyond the layer of vegetation to the south, you can see Big Bayou, an inlet off Tampa Bay. The neighborhood is called Driftwood, and just last year, it was designated an official historic district. The homes inside were part of the earliest suburbs in this area, and many were custom-built, meaning they aren't the cookie-cutter homes of the mid-20th century. Inside of one cottage with pink azaleas bursting from the ground, I am served a glass of lemonade and a bowl of candied walnuts. Paintings of faces, landscapes, and homes sit comfortably on the walls, along with tall bookshelves filled with historic accounts, art collections, and most importantly, poetry. Though there are many poets collected on the shelves, in this home there is one in particular that features most prominently. It makes sense since this is his home. Well, my name is Peter Meinke. I retired early from uh, being a head of the writing program at Eckerd College in St. Petersburg. And uh, I've been a poet all my life and have gone around since 1966 to all places in Florida reading poems, this sort of thing. That is Peter Meinke. We're sitting at his dining room table with his wife, Jean, who planted the azaleas out front and has drawn much of the art around the home. She, too, is accomplished in her field, with drawings gracing the pages of The New Yorker and illustrations on the cover of her husband's poetry books. They are lovely, friendly octogenarians who spent the last few years getting this neighborhood officially named a historic district in order to protect the buildings from demolition or alteration. At one meeting, Peter even read one of his poems. His words naturally carry weight, and his work has a clarity in its descriptions. More than his artistic ability, however, something else inclines people to listen to what he has to say. He is the Poet Laureate for the state of Florida. But anyway, I got a telephone call saying you are, you are picked as Florida's Poet Laureate. And what I've done, basically there was no real thing except I was to go around like a kind of Johnny Appleseed reading uh, poetry to anybody I thought should, should uh, be worthwhile to read to them that would be helpful for Florida, would be fun. I didn't want to preach, I didn't want to dictate that you have to become a poet or read poetry in particular. I wanted it to be fun. The title of Laureate is an archaic one. It dates back to a time where treasured artists and poets would be honored with a wreath made from laurels. In Greek mythology, the laurel tree is sacred to Apollo, the god of art and poetry. 
In 17th century England, the title was originated as a position for writers who would write songs and odes specifically for birthdays and some holidays. It wasn't until the mid-1800s with the appointment of famed English poet William Wordsworth that the title became a reward for exceptional artistry, which lasts to this day in England. In 1936, the position came to the United States when a philanthropist named Archer M. Huntington created the role with the Library of Congress. The first poet laureate was appointed the following year. His name was Joseph Oslinder, a Philadelphia-raised poet who served in the position until 1941. Since then, there have been over 50 other poet laureates serving one or two years until passing the position on to the next artist. During their time, the poet has free reign to do what they will lectures, classes, charities, writing, etc. Mostly, their position is to honor the art of poetry and to spread the importance of their work. Today, the U.S. Poet Laureate is a woman named Joy Harjo, a member of the Creek Tribe who has been publishing poetry since she was 24 in 1975. She is the first Native American to hold this position. You have to watch her official inauguration to the position with the Library of Congress. Not only does she read some of her amazing work with such clarity and balance, but she also plays the saxophone. She is the coolest. Florida's position of Poet Laureate, however, predates the position of Poet Laureate in the country. We nominated our first state Poet Laureate almost a decade earlier, in 1927. Then-Governor John W. Martin, perhaps as a means to draw more folks during the land boom of the 1920s, appointed a man named Franklin N. Wood to the position of State Poet Laureate. Wood had just published his book of Florida poetry, Sunset Horns, so he was just the man for the job. There was one problem, however. Florida in those days had a system that was like the old English system that a poet laureate appointed by the governor and it was for life. The term for a poet laureate in Florida was a lifetime appointment, and Franklin N. Wood died just three years after his appointment in 1931. The new governor, our pal Doyle E. Carlton, who you'll remember from the story of greyhound racing in Florida, needed to appoint the next poet for the job. We'll come back to her in a minute. When Florida's third poet laureate, Dr. Edmund Skellings, passed in 2012, the state decided to change the rules of the appointment. It would no longer be a lifetime position. It would be a four-year term, and the individual would be chosen by the legislature instead of by the governor. In 2014, the state was looking for the new laureate. They got a, a lot of nominations were put up, and I didn't think it was going to be me for a very good reason, because uh, Ed Skillings happened to be my exact age, and I could see a committee. Hey, I have an idea. Let's appoint a poet just as an old white guy, just like the old white guy who just died. I said, well, I don't know if I would vote for that as a general idea, you know, but so I had nothing to do with it, perhaps fortunately. <laughs> Nominations were gathered, and at the beginning of 2015, Peter Meinke of St. Petersburg took up the job. Peter was born in Brooklyn and joined the army as a young man. When he got out of the army, he was married to Jean, and the young couple needed income to survive. They started working for Jean's father in real estate. One day, a man who Peter was trying to sell some land to asked what he wanted to do with his life. Here was the flash. I'm showing a lot to a guy. Not at all interested. 
and I'm making talk, and I'm saying, you know, not caring, really. And I said, what do you do? And he said, oh, I'm a teacher over at Mountain Lakes High School. And I said, oh, I was semi-truthful. I said, oh, I thought of being a teacher once, but, you know, I had no idea how one goes about it or anything like that. And I never had the time to really think about it because I was in the Army, drafted right away out of school, and then had to get work and get married. So he said, what would you like to teach? And I said, I guess I'd, I'd like to teach literature or poetry. Or, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to read. And he said, that's really weird. He says, the uh, English teacher at Mountain Lakes got drafted yesterday, the very day, yesterday. <laughs> and it was like I got hit by lightning on the road. I trapped this guy. I said, I'm going to go over it. <laughs> well, I got hired right on the spot. You know, they gave me these books for eighth grade English. I come home to Genie's, she looks at the books and what's this? I say, oh, I've just taken a new job at Mountain Lakes teaching English at $4,400 a year, but they're going to give me 400 extra for two years in the Army. <laughs> and Genie sort of blinks and says, oh, we better go tell Daddy. <laughs> so, Peter began his career as an English teacher. A few years after this, with a couple more kids in tow, the Meinkey family briefly moved to the University of Michigan until settling in at Hamlin University in St. Paul, Minnesota, where Peter taught and studied to get his PhD. When it came to write his thesis, he wrote about the life of Howard Nemirov, who was himself a U.S. Poet Laureate twice. During that time, they befriended a theater professor named Jim Carlson. They lived near each other and worked together often. It was the early 60s and Jim Carlson was making theater that was considered quite radical at the time. He was called into the president of the college's office and was asked to stop directing quote-unquote commie plays. He quits that job within a year. And through sheer luck, he finds another position at a college that was just forming down here in St. Petersburg called Florida Presbyterian College. Carlson moved down and created the college's theater department and there was a position just right for his pal, Peter Meinke. Jim calls and says, hey, you know, they're looking for a, a young poet, probably because they don't want to pay too much, uh, to, to create the first undergraduate creative writing major in America. No big deal. Some of his poems find their way in front of the president of the college, and the rest is history. Soon after, he begins writing poetry about Florida. Which brings us back to Florida's second poet laureate, Vivian Larimore Rader. She, like all of our state's poet laureates, was not born in Florida. She was born in Missouri in 1892, but grew up in Sanford. In one famous account as a child, she was asked to describe poetry on a question in a final test. She said, quote, poetry is written on the wings of a butterfly, end quote. She graduated in May 1910 and had a tumultuous decade afterwards. Her father died, she got married, she lost two infant sons, and eventually moved to Miami in 1920. She wrote a poem then called Today. I've closed the door on yesterday and thrown away the key. Tomorrow holds no fear for me since I have found today. This poem found its way into magazines along with dozens and dozens more. She was writing about family, about being a woman in that era, and it found national appeal. Eventually, she found much to write about in the Florida landscape, writing more about the things around her, the water, the trees, the flowers. 
Some of her poems were put to music and some were published in collections. The land boom in the 1920s eventually crashed and Vivian's husband could no longer support the family. It was up to Vivian. That's okay by her, however, because life in Florida had given her plenty to say. In 1932, with the help of a man named Henry Harrison, she published a book of Florida poems called Flamingo. Harrison, who helped publish it, was a vanity publisher based out of New York. This meant that he had one specific niche of literature he was interested in publishing. His particular interest was poetry. He was in contact with tens of thousands of poets nationally, and according to an article about him in The New Yorker from 1937, quote, he edits his books, has a finger in the design, makeup, and even the typesetting." End quote. It is through Vivian that Harrison begins collecting poems for another book, one made up of all sorts of poets, not just Vivian. He starts posting articles in newspapers asking for Florida poets to send him work and writing so that he may publish them in a brand new book called Florida Poets. One such poet was Philip E. Barney. Near as I can tell, he was a journalist who often wrote about sailing and boats. He published in a magazine called The Daily Colonist, which was based out of Victoria, British Columbia. He seems to have been based out of Tampa, however, and spent much of his life sailing and writing about sailing. He wrote a few poems mostly about his favorite topics, and one that was called Daytona Beach. It is so puzzling and so odd that it actually sent me on this adventure in the first place. Here it is again verbatim, just eight lines. Swifter than sight, a flash and a roar, a meteorite skimming the shore. Defiant of fate, man is the master, a moment but wait, death can fly faster. What could he be talking about? I know poetry is not meant to be literal, there is metaphor and simile and visual language, but what does this mean? The word that trips me up here is meteorite. My first impulse is he's talking about the sun, but that feels too brutal. It's hot, certainly, but it's not a meteorite. And most importantly, why is it called Daytona Beach? I read it to my friend Peter Meinke, and he too was puzzled by it. Whoa, very strange. Yeah. Very strange. Why, why Daytona? Why, and it's just <laughs> called Daytona Beach. Later, we get to talking about his poetry which he admits was quite angry when he started writing. He wrote early on about Disney's Magic Kingdom and the frustration it held for him as an American. As he spent more time here and saw more of the joy, he found more things to write about, more things that he loved. You know, some things are just gorgeous, you see, a, you know, a, a falcon, you know, go up, you know, and then I, I probably would have, have the you know, when the falcon is so beautiful, and, then he's, and he's brave and he's strong, and then I, I might have him have a squirrel in his mouth by the end of the movie. You know, but I, I don't start off that. I said, "Whoa, I gotta write about that." I used to go to school on a moped, and I used to, you know, pull off, <laughs> pull off the road if I saw, you know, an alligator coming out of Lake Majority there. Or there is truth in poetry, and I think it is. It's uh, you know the, the emotional history of the world, but it's. It's not factual, and then that's that's a thing that I keep I keep in in my head when I when I'm writing. I don't try to put it all down like a historian, but I, I put it down because it's it's it moves me somehow. There's something that makes me think that that this has an importance, and I in a certain way, of course, poets think everything is important, and that may be true. You know, so I don't fight it. 
Peter tells me he does often write about Florida, obviously, but he finds that the truth in all of these things is that there is life and there is death. I think that what moves me often is something that's beautiful. It could be an azalea or a tree. And, and of course, I, I link it somehow subconsciously maybe to our children. I'm thinking it's so beautiful. It lasts such a short time. And that's true of people. I mean, I think I do that kind of link. That is, in a sense, I, I've always not been exactly... I'm not a, a pessimist exactly, but I always think of life as a tragedy, and everybody loses at the end. You know, it's it's not a duck this, and we have only a little bit of road left. You know, this sort of thing, and and that's in my mind. And somehow, in that moment, I get the poem, Daytona Beach. It's somehow exactly what Peter is talking about. If you remember Daytona Beach, the real place, not the poem is on the east coast where the sun rises. The sun, I guess, is the meteorite, swifter than sight, a flash and a roar, a meteorite skimming the shore. Philip E. Barney is describing the sun as it travels through the sky in one rotation of the day, and how fast that can feel, how quickly a day can go by and it can just go like that before you even know it, how uncaring the sun can be of fate or man, And even though the day is fast and the sun moves quickly, Barney reminds us, death can fly faster. Uh, What do you hope of the the person who has the position next? What do you hope for in that? Not not so much in the person themselves, but in their their sort of hopes, how they feel about the position. Yes. I would like them to feel that they they were important and they were doing a, a, a... doing a very good thing for the state. Let's hope that it's, it's someone who uh, relates to people. And, uh, we have some really wonderful poets, and most of them have some sense of humor, too, and some are wildly funny. And uh, that's always helpful, and, and making people enjoy, enjoy the poetry. Peter wasn't supposed to be in this position this long. The legislature was supposed to have picked a new person sometime in 2018 and appointed a new laureate last year, but delays kept them from doing so. He informs me that by April, it's likely he will no longer be the poet laureate. Someone new will have the job. He will now just be a Florida poet. Obviously, one of the greats. And he still has so much to say. He always has. Whether it be about the trees around his home and their dying leaves, or about the pain of American politics and its cruel contradictions, or the fragile balance between the way things begin and the way things end. He tells me that, though he loves Florida, wherever he wound up, whether in Minnesota or Florida or in his hometown of New York City, he would have found something to celebrate and love. Wherever he ended up would have been home. We are lucky that he wound up in our company. To take us home, here's Peter reading his poem, Old Houses. It's about the warm cottage that we sat in on this Saturday morning, about loving the things that are easy to love, as well as the things that are not. There's nothing in my mind more Floridian than that. Here's Peter. Old houses are best, they have secrets. Shadows trembling everywhere, in closet and corner. Their weakness, secret. Cracks in the blocks, corroded pipes, the termites patient gnawing. 
Their strengths are secret, too. The hand-carved attic beam, the portrait paneled over, a feeling they've earned their way. Every board in the house has been pressed by finger and foot, forehead and knee. Tears on old tiles have worn their stories. Stories spread through the rooms like the hint of camellias. We breathe stories here. We inhale old passions, exhale the dead resolutions that are still moving. In the closet there is something. Sun slants through casement windows, around slender candles, shattering on the wicker where we sit. In love with the shadows, old houses are best old oaks. Bend over them, whispering, it's all right, it's all right. All those kids had fun. And remember that young couple who had such love for each other, it overflowed. And did the azaleas sing and birds blaze like roses? And even the garage, long ago burned down, was an object of affection. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Wait 5 Minutes. I'm so glad that you are here. If you are brand new to this show, or even if this is your first episode, welcome. There are some really incredible stories waiting for you. If you're looking for a good place to jump in, you don't need to go all the way back to the beginning. Might I recommend some episodes similar to this one, like my episode about some other amazing Florida writers, Marjorie Kinnon Rawlings, Zora Neale Hurston, and Marjorie Stoneman Douglas. I've done episodes about all of them. Go ahead and check those out. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider leaving a five-star review below. It helps the show become more visible, and honestly, it just brightens up my day. You can also find me and share the episodes on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at WFMPod. If you want to send me a message, you can do so at WFMPod at gmail.com. I look forward to hearing from you. I'd like to give a very special thank you to our state's magnificent poet laureate, Peter Meinke, and his wife, Jean, who let me into their home and spent a wonderful morning chatting with me. They've published several books together that you should absolutely add to your collection. You can also do some additional reading about Vivian Larimore Rader and the origin of poet laureates in the links below. Thanks to Lauren Nix for artwork used on the social media channels. You can see more of her art at lauren.nix.photo on Instagram. Her last name, Nix, is spelt N-I-X. All of the music used in this episode is from Lobo Loco. You can find more of their fabulous music at the link below as well. I'll see you next Monday with a brand new episode about snakes and hurricanes. Until then, I'm Nick D'Alessandro. Be good to yourself, be good to others, and please drink more water. Have a good one.